This afternoon we've reached the third talk in a little mini-series of four, which uh, we entitled A New Life. Um, the, the, this little series is designed to describe something of the newness and the balance of a truly Christian life. And our word for today is fighting. And I, I should be clear right at the start that I'm not encouraging you to fight with one another. This... Um, it's a bit ironic last night that we had the Gypsy King, Tyson Fury, in his big fight in Las Vegas. I'm not really a boxing fan, but it was the, it was the number one thing on the BBC News uh, page this morning. Um, so I'm not encouraging you to be a literal Tyson Fury or to fight against one another. If you would like a verse that summarises our theme for this afternoon, you'll find it in that passage that Andrew hopefully read to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Keep your finger in the page there. Verse 12, uh, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Um, So what what, what I want to do this afternoon is, is, it's not odd, but um, I I feel a little bit anxious about today's talk. We're we're not going to be, in a sense, spelling out how to fight. I, I think... This talk, I, I really want to set a tone. And I think this theme of fighting is a really important one that we often neglect to remember when we think about the Christian life. So th- this, this is a tone-setting talk. And uh, so I, I want to say that right at the outset and not make an apology for that, but may- maybe you'll need to join up some of the dots as to what this looks like practically for you in your own lives. Maybe that's something we could talk about this week in our life groups. So this is really trying to recover a a tone that I think maybe we've lost. Um, So we're going to try and unpick what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 6 uh, a little little later. But because this comes towards the end of this short letter, uh, I thought it would be good. It's part of Paul's conclusion in a sense. I thought it would be good for us to just stand back and... uh, see some context you'll be intrigued on the program that my heading here is into the chicken coop Um, Paul here has left his younger colleague leading a troubled church in the ancient city of Ephesus it's in modern day Turkey you can go there and see some of the ruins and this letter that Paul writes to his younger colleague is essentially a guide on how to lead a church well um, this, this is a pastoral guide to another leader, um, from a mature leader to a younger guy, his protege, giving him some advice on how to lead well. Now, some of you know that we have had chickens at home over the last few years, and they are fascinating creatures to watch. Um, they, 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 they strut, they strut about. Uh, sometimes we open, they, they have their own little keep, but sometimes we open the, the gate because Jane feels sorry for them and wants them to eat some of the real grass rather than all the compost we throw in their coop. But they're, they're, she'll open the door and they'll come out and they kind of, they, they have this kind of, I'm not a very good impression. <laughs> they stick their necks out, they strut, don't they? And, and they fight to establish the pecking order. We lost some and bought some new ones. And when you put the new ones with the old ones, there's three or four days of fighting. And we, we have this phrase in our language, don't we? They fight to establish the pecking order. 
by literally packing. That's, that's where the phrase comes from. They strut, they pack, they make a lot of noise, they make a lot of mass. And I think here Paul is sending Timothy into a church that looks a little bit like our chicken coop. They haven't got wings. They're not obviously sticking their necks out. But this is a church where people are strutting, pecking. It's, it's noisy, it's messy. And, and Paul has given his young protege the job of leading this church. I want you to go into the chicken coop, Timothy. I think this church has problems in, in at least three areas. We're not, we're not going to like study this whole letter. And I, I didn't put these on the program because there wasn't room. So if you're making notes, just we'll quickly skip over these. Um, first of all, this is a church that was weak on truth. Just go with me to chapter one. Some stunning words at the beginning of this letter. As Paul writes to Timothy... This is what he says to him in verse 3. Imagine this. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Ouch. What a, what a way to open a letter. Timothy, I left you there so that you could sort this out. There are some people that you're going to have to tell to shut up and be quiet. Because rather than teaching the solid truth of the gospel, they, 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 they just love a good debate. They're strutting. Rather than promoting God's love and grace, they just love a good debate. There's more heat and friction than learning in this church. Secondly, weak on unity. This is the problem of unhealthy competition, if you like. There's an interesting little section in chapter 2, uh, just, just reading from verse 8, where Paul is urging them to be a praying church. That's a good thing, right? But you can't pray well with people that you're competing with. And it says there in verse 8, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. As Paul urges them to be a praying church, he, he, he's saying two things here. Not, not everyone in the church, but the men would rather have a good argument and the women would rather show off their hairstyles. And he's trying to tell them to pray and what they're doing is grappling for status. It's a picture of posturing rather than praying or cooperating. Thirdly, this is a church that is weak on generosity. In chapter 6, 
um, just towards the end. Paul speaks a little bit about, I, I suppose he's talked about religion and money, two things that never sit well together. This is the problem of greed. And it isn't that money and wealth are in themselves evil. Paul says in verse 10, it's a much misquoted verse, it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Those who do have money can often become arrogant and superior. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. T tell them not to be arrogant or to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. On the other hand, others can make it their obsession to become rich and get frustrated that life doesn't feel fair. Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Into the chicken coop. Weak on truth, weak on unity, weak on generosity. There's a lot of squawking and strutting going on in this church. Some commentators believe that although this letter is a personal letter written to Timothy, it's designed in such a way that Timothy can read it out to the whole church. Imagine that. Timothy stands up one Sunday and says, I've had a letter from the great Apostle Paul. Dear Timothy. And he stands up and reads this letter. I think Paul's aiming to do two things here. One is to underline Timothy's authority. Some people are saying he's too young. Some people don't want to be challenged. So Paul sends this letter to Timothy, possibly asking him to read it out to the whole church so that no one will be in any doubt that he is the leader, and while he's talking to Timothy, the whole church are hearing, this is a serious business, guys. <coughs> Clever way, maybe, of dealing with issues. Now, we, we've just briefly touched on this background in the hope that three things will become apparent uh, to us. And they, these are on the programme now, and they should appear behind us here on the screen. First of all, evil is complex. We're, uh, we're going to go a little bit meta here. But uh, I, I do find it interesting that this letter is in God's word. Don't you? If someone were making this up, I'm not sure they would include a letter like this at all. You want to put a good spin on Christianity so that it's attractive to people. I, I'm, I'm not sure if you were making that up that you would include a letter like this one. The point is that the Bible doesn't put a gloss on reality. It doesn't put a gloss on this church being dysfunctional. Rather, it seeks to describe accurately and honestly what is really already there. I think in our modern society, Christianity is often dismissed as being very simplistic. Um... But in actual fact, the Bible gives us a very complex and sophisticated understanding of evil that I think fits with our experience 
of real life. I, I was trying to remember this week where I'd read it and I, and I couldn't find it. But I, I think American author Tim Keller talks about this somewhere and suggests that when we think about the concept of evil, it is at, at all at the same time, evil is above us, it is all around us, and we also find, sadly, to our shame, that it is within us. Multi-dimensional, more complex than we think it is. Above us, around us, and within us. This kind of view of evil agrees with older Christian writers who, or teachers who, re who regularly identified the three significant enemies of a Christian believer and they would talk of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies. The world around us and its systems and structures does not love God and will not help us to love God more. When they spoke about the flesh, they were really hinting at something that describes our own inward selfish tendencies and natures. Although we have a new life in Christ, as we've been seeing, our old habits die hard. And we find, therefore, as Christian believers, that there's a conflict inside of us. We, we've, we've been forgiven, we are right with God, but our old nature is often reasserting itself and trying to dominate us. And then we also have very real and powerful spiritual enemies. The devil is, is not a cartoon character in a red suit with a pitchfork. There, there, there are spiritual forces of evil that we cannot see, but I think you would agree that we can certainly see the effects of such forces everywhere. This complex combination of external spiritual forces, a dysfunctional environment, and our own inward tendencies is how God's word describes real life in this world. The Bible's concept of evil is not simplistic at all. It's inside of us, it's all around us, and it's above us. And I said we were going to go a little bit meta. The connection I want to make here is that it shouldn't surprise us that a church can be dysfunctional like this one is. This church is like a chicken coop because evil is complex and we shouldn't underestimate its power. But secondly, Christ is our champion. The great hope of the Christian gospel is that evil in all its complexity will not ultimately prevail. And I want to give you a couple of reasons that that's true. The first glorious reason is that although evil is complex in the way we've described, Christ has utterly conquered all of these aspects of it. Jesus has overcome and transcends all of the successive empires 
and cultures of this world. In John chapter 16, verse 33, one of the last recorded comments of Jesus to his disciples, Jesus said something realistic and optimistic. In one sentence, Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. Realistic, but take heart. In some ways, it says, be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Jesus has also conquered every unseen evil spiritual power. Through his death and resurrection, he roundly thrashed them. In one place in the New Testament, Paul speaks elsewhere about Jesus stripping them, exposing them, triumphing over them, humiliating them. You can read about that in Colossians chapter 2. And thirdly, Jesus has also bought for his people forgiveness from sin and he offers the power to live an entirely new kind of life evil is complex but Christ has utterly conquered all of its complexity but a second reason that evil won't prevail has something to do with the origin of evil. I don't want to dwell in this talk on the origin of evil, but some people, you'll know this, some people believe that we live in a world where good and evil are necessary balancing opposites. You know, so it's, some cultures will talk about the yin and the yang. You know, there's a good and there's an evil. There's a force for good and a force of darkness, and these things just are, and they're competing, and who knows who's going to win. It's a kind of necessary balance. The, the Bible speaks very diff- differently and puts good and evil in two very different categories because it tells us that God did not create evil. God is good and everything that God has created was good. And that means that good is, in a sense, an ultimate thing and that evil is a secondary derivative thing evil therefore isn't something that exists alongside good as a thing in and of itself evil actually only arises as an anomaly when created beings twist the good things that God has created and use them in ways God did not intend. Evil is therefore not how things were intended to be. And even the powerful spiritual forces that the Bible speaks of were originally good before they rebelled against God. This same corruption infects the human race. Originally made in God's image and retaining the mark of God's image, the dignity and value that that conveys, and yet fallen, ruined. And that fact alone ensures that the world around us is an environment that is so often anti-God. The Bible doesn't make clear why God in his wisdom has permitted evil 
to twist his good creation. But what we do know is that this is not a struggle with an uncertain outcome. We're not waiting to see which side will win. Because evil cannot ultimately overthrow the goodness of God. I want to suggest to you, therefore, we, we've kind of meandered a little while with that, but I want to suggest it to you that the Christian gospel is therefore cosmic in its significance and in its reach and in its impact. There is a real war, but God is ultimately in control and has entered this conflict decisively in the person of his son, And isn't it a testimony to God's wisdom and power that the way Jesus wins in this war is not with some macho display of power, which is the way the world operates, but Jesus wins. He powerfully defeats all of the manifestations of evil through the humility and, if we can say it this way, the unimpressiveness of his cross. Jesus is the great king who wins by losing. He fights in a different way to the way the world fights. So here's the thing. When Paul sends Timothy into the squawking chicken coop that is this church, it is not with some clever new philosophy He doesn't send Timothy into this church to be morally superior. What Paul is doing here in this letter is sending Timothy to teach people about the cosmic victory of Jesus over the evil that is in this world. Rather than this being some kind of interesting speculation to be debated and discussed, Paul calls this sound doctrine. It is healthy and life-giving. This is a truth that transforms lives. This is the light that dispels darkness. This is the good that overcomes evil. Paul describes it in chapter 1 as the glorious gospel of our blessed God. I I love that. The word blessed is a rich word. We, We could translate it as happy. It means so much more than that. But what a thing for Paul to say, the glorious good news of our happy God. Thirdly, we're called then to fight. Life is a struggle. There's a fight to be engaged in. And there is a tension here in the Bible because we're also encouraged at the same time to rest in all that God has done for us in Christ. Our salvation, on the one hand, totally depends on what God has done for us. Nothing we can do contributes to our forgiveness. We can't earn our way into God's favour. It's a gift. 
This is our story, but we're not the heroes in that story. Christ is our champion, and the battle has been won solely by him for us. But alongside all the biblical encouragement to rest secure in what Christ has done for us, there's also this strong note that we are to pick a side in this cosmic war and fight with every fibre of our beings. This is the tension. Both things are true. Both things are there in the scripture. To, to rest and to fight. We've said this is not fighting with each other. That would be very wrong. This is not fighting for salvation from God. That's a gift. But it should tell us that Christianity is not some kind of escapism from real life. The, the Christian gospel can never be used as an excuse for being lazy or complacent. If you read the New Testament everywhere, we're, we're urged and reminded that we will reap what we sow. We're constantly urged to make every effort, to strive, to pursue, and yes, even to fight. The, the, these are words that involve application, hard work, some sweat and effort. In the New Testament, we have this wonderful tension on the one hand, we have the resting, the singing, the confidence, the peace, the comfort, the security. And on the other hand, we have the seriousness, the effort, the hard work, the commitment, the sacrifice. With some of this brief background, I, I'm trying to get across the thrust of Paul's logic here Paul sends Timothy into this chicken coop like a kind of singing soldier does that make sense he is armed with the cosmic solid truth about Jesus found in the gospel and yet urged at the same time to fight the good fight of the faith Timothy is sent here to fight for unity, for truth, for generosity. He, he's going to fight more personally for holiness and integrity in his own life. Like a singing soldier, celebrating God's goodness and fighting the good fight of faith. Okay, well, let's come. And uh, we're going to very briefly look at these verses more closely that Andrew read to us in chapter 6 you'll see on the programme there Paul urges Timothy to do four things and with all that background th this is what it distills to four very energetic words flee, chase fight and grab and as we start notice here in verse 11 that Paul says man of God man of God 
he's not speaking to everyone here. What Paul says here is only possible for those like Timothy, and we've been thinking about this. This, this is for those who are already standing in the grace of God with a new identity. This is for those who are already walking in a new relationship with God. And now we see that there's work to do. You, man of God, first of all then, flee. This is an important thing, isn't it? The first thing to realise is that sometimes the best option is to run away. Um, I, I remember getting into, I've told you this before, I think, I, I remember getting into a fight as a youngster. I'd have only been about 10. And my younger brother was being abused or bullied by some of the boys. And I, I, I just dove in, tried to protect him and got my own head kicked in. Um, sometimes the best thing is to run away, isn't it? Um, we're taught, aren't we, that big boys don't run away. It seems weak to run away. When it comes to sin, there, there are times when the right course of action is to flee. I, I think it's almost as if that there are things that are like a kind of deadly poison or a rabid dog or a fire-breathing monster, and you just wouldn't hang around to have a chat. You know, you would. You'd get your running shoes on. Paul says to Timothy, you man of God, flee from all this. There's no credit to be gained from hanging around, having a chat with sin. That... Timothy's to flee here from all this. It's all the stuff Paul's been talking about that we've been trying to briefly describe in this letter. The competitive strutting, the love of money and status, the desire to win in debates rather than make progress and maturity. You're a man of God, Timothy. Flee from this. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, slightly different issue, but... Joseph and his technical dream coat, he, he ended up working for a man in Egypt called Potiphar, the captain of the guard, and Potiphar's wife took a shine to him, and she said to Joseph, come to bed with me. And he didn't hang around to have a chat with her. He made a run for it. He ran so fast that he left his coat behind. I think it's true that sometimes in life, often when we should be running like Joseph did, we dance around on the edge of things we, we actually know are wrong. We, we, we tell ourselves that we think we're in control and that we can stop at any time. It's curiosity, I'm just having a little dabble, it's not a big deal. Flee here is a strong word. This is Paul saying, Timothy, stop messing about. <laughs> There's a time to be decisive and ruthless rather than careless. And I think there can be a communal aspect to this as well. 
sometimes we can show that we mean business if, if we're struggling with something in, in some of these areas. It's good sometimes not to be alone in the shadows, but to share something of those struggles with a trusted friend so that they can help us to flee. Don't, don't think that you're the only one who's struggling. Don't think that you're the only one who's fighting. And don't try always to fight alone in the shadows. Sometimes it's helpful to bring our struggles into light, with, not with everyone, but with someone, so that we know that we're being decisive. You man of God, woman of God, flee from all this. The second imperative is chase. Paul says here, pursue. And again, this is such an energetic word, isn't it? Um, a couple of times I've been to see Whippet racing who knew um, there's, a, there's a race course in Doncaster I think there's one in Sheffield as well it's quite a funny thing to watch all the, all the dogs line up in their little cages and then this little plastic rabbit goes shooting off on a track and you think the Whippets would get used to it after a while wouldn't you, greyhounds not Whippets and the doors lift up and they tear off around the track after this plastic rabbit. Pursuing, chasing. Here are six rabbits, actually, that seem to come in three pairs that we are called to pursue. The first pair is righteousness and godliness. I think righteousness in this context means good behaviour towards other people. Godliness, of course, openness and relationship to God. Pursue a life that pleases God and treats other people well. <clears throat> and the second pair comp confirms that idea, I think, righteousness and godliness, and then faith and love. Faith is Godward and love surely includes God and other people. Paul says to Timothy, chase these things, pursue these things. Trusting God, loving people. The last pair, though, is interesting, isn't it? Endurance and gentleness. I think when things are hard for us, one of two things can often happen. On the one hand, we, we give up. <laughs> on the other hand, we get grumpy. Sometimes we do both. We give up and we're grumpy. Um, they're, they're not necessarily mutually incompatible extremes. Um, I, I think this is often hard for us men. When things get hard, we get frustrated. We, we can't fi fix things. And, and, and we tend to either disappear and hide or get shirty. Or, or even become abusive to our shame. In this situation, Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to be a real man and avoid both of those extremes. Don't hide, don't become abusive. You need to be present, but you need to be appropriately present. 
Timothy's going to need perseverance, but he's also going to need to be gentle in the face of pro provocation and opposition. If he becomes bitter and angry, or, or he just decides this is not the gig for me and I'm, I'm off, I, I think this list, the, the, these pairs are amazing. Timothy, flee from these things and chase these things down. Pursue them. Make these things your life goals. Work at them. Prize them. Practice them. Pursue them. And then we come to this uh, word in verse 12, fight. Fight the good fight. Let's just spend a, a few minutes on picking this one. This is an idea taken from sporting culture. And one of the big things in Greek culture will have been the idea of sporting prowess. We get the Olympics from the Greeks. We get the word Nike from the Greeks. So major cities would often have great games festivals and the watching public would be enthralled by displays of human endeavour. Whatever it is, wrestling, running, chariot racing, throwing, jumping. The idea was of human specimens operating at the very limits of their potential and the crowds cheering and the prizes being given out at the end. Apparently, the, the word for fight here is the word that we get our word agonising from. The word agonise originally meant to engage in conflict. And over the years, it came to describe what it would mean to compete in the Olympic Games. So Paul is literally saying here, agonise the good agony. Compete in the good competition. He's comparing the Christian life to the Olympics. I don't know who the sports stars of their day would have been. But he's urging Timothy to be an Olympian. See these guys, Timothy? I mean, am I out of date with some of these? I don't know. Jessica Ennis? She's retired now. <laughs> I show my age. Um, Usain Bolt? Mo Farah? These, these great Olympians. We, we were at the Olympic Stadium in London in 2012 and saw... Uh, Mo Farah uh, win one of his gold medals and uh, it was amazing the roar that went around the track as Mo Farah was running around and it brought goose but stand at the end singing the national anthem and uh, an amazing evening Paul is saying to Timothy look at these guys and be like that in your Christian life there, there's something else here too Paul calls this specifically a good fight and the interesting thing about that is that the ancient Greeks had lots of different words for good. We just have one. Good. <laughs> but the ancient Greeks had lots of different words for good. Moral goodness. Or functional goodness. You know, if something's a good fit, you know, it just... It just there's a different word for that. That's a different kind of goodness. And they had a different word to describe... Aesthetics, something that was beautiful to look at. Greeks loved sport, but they had strong opinions as well about beauty. 
And I, I wonder whether we have this in sport as well. We, we love uh, to see commitment, determination, focus. We love the blood and thunder that, that is there in sport sometimes. But is it not true that as sports fans, we also long for the flair? We, we like our team, if we're a football fan, to win skillfully rather than just winning ugly all the time. It'd be boring to watch if we were just grinding out results all the time. We want to see skill. We want to see something that appeals to us as being beautiful. Isn't it true as well? Commentators often describe sportsmen like Roger, Roger Federer, the tennis player, graceful and elegant. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's almost words of beauty. It's, it's, it's a joy to watch. Paul here uses a word that conveys something of that. Fight the beautiful fight. This is not for Paul just about grim determination. It's not just about sweat, but it, impl it implies a joy and a skill and an enthusiasm. Paul, it's like, I, I don't know, as I've been reflecting on this this week, it's made me think, it's like Paul saying to Timothy, put it in the top corner, Timothy. Crack it for four. Smash it down the line. Play with a smile on your face. Fight the beautiful fight. Timothy, live your life in this chicken coop. Before God and towards other people with faith and love and endurance and gentleness, but with satisfaction and pleasure, like an elite athlete who is at the top of his game and who plays with a smile on his face. Agonize the good agony. Is that how we think of our Christian lives? We've already noted, haven't we, how easy it is to think that Christianity is like some kind of escapism from the realities of life. Sometimes the tone is, come to Jesus and he'll kind of give you drugs so that you just won't notice how difficult life is. No, no. This sounds to me much more like facing reality with the power and goodness of Christ in one's heart. At times it will mean stress, tears, hard work, sacrifice. Paul surely here is emphasizing something we said at the start, setting a tone. He's emphasizing a mindset here of joyful determination. A life that strains to use every ounce of energy. Timothy, flee these things, chase these things, agonize the good agony. No one can fight like that if they don't think it's worth it. So let's just close by seeing Paul's last imperative. I've called it the word grab. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. And then Paul says, take hold 
grab the eternal life to which you were called. Notice here again that it's God who calls Timothy to this. It starts with God, not with Timothy. Timothy's life, Paul's life, our lives are not built on our achievements, but on God's gracious invitation. God calls us to eternal life. And the point is, if God has called you to this, grab it with both hands. Do not take it for granted and do not be complacent. The grace of God in your life should not make you anemic or insipid. It should make you brave and bold. That's Paul's point here. Grab it. There's an American pastor called R. Kent Hughes. What a wonderful name. It's good when you put an initial in as well, isn't it? It just makes you sound a little bit. If he was called R. Kent Hughes III, that would be the cream, wouldn't it? <laughs> R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, recounts the story of a man who shot an eagle when he was out hunting. And when he examined, he came to the place where the eagle had landed, obviously shot. The eagle had landed. <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. Um, and when he, when he examined this eagle, he found that the eagle had, get this, the dry skull of a weasel clamped around its neck. What must have happened was that when the eagle attacked the weasel, it responded by biting on to the bird's neck and then staying there, <coughs> refusing to let go, even when it died. And even after its flesh dropped off, the skull was still tightly clamped around the eagle's neck. R. Kent Hughes writes this as a comment. Just so, he says, with an exclamation mark, we are to grab onto the eternal life that is already ours and ride it for all it's worth. Through the ups and downs of following Christ, eternal life, the knowledge of God the Father and Christ his Son, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of sins forgiven, the peace of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy of service, the love of God. These are the things we must grab onto and joyously hold onto until we arrive in heaven. In this series then, we've been trying to paint a picture of the balance of the Christian life, standing in the grace of God, walking in a new relationship with God. And now Paul describes this. It's, it's a kind of beautiful tenacity that should characterise our lives. Will ye flee from sin? Will, will ye chase holiness? Will ye fight the good fight of the faith.
And will you grab hold with all your strength the eternal life that God himself has called you to? And will we, will we as a church be a bunch of singing soldiers fighting for truth, for unity and for generosity because of Christ, our great champion. Amen. We're going to sing the final song as the musicians come up. Let's bow for a moment and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, tone that Paul sets for us here, that Paul set for Timothy. And we, Lord, we're, we're aware of how our personalities can play to this as well. We, we pray, Lord, that your word would, would challenge us and stretch us and encourage us. Father, we pray that you would help us not to be those who are fearful, but those who are made bold to fight the good fight of the faith. Help us, Lord, in your strength. Help, help the weak to be strong. Help the timid to be brave. Inspire our faith and our zeal and our actions, we pray. And help us to help one another. Father, we thank you that this is a community where people do share their struggles and encourage one another. Help us to help one another to fight this good fight. Help us to fight it together. Help us to be those who rejoice in your goodness celebrate and sing for the security that we have in Christ and help us to be those who take up our crosses and follow Christ working hard agonising the good beautiful agony bless us we pray for Christ's sake